Hello there, and welcome to episode two of the Biome Podcast. I am Graham, your host, and we have a fantastic show for you today. But before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that you can visit us on the web at biome.media and sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss a single episode. Or you can read our field notes while you're there. You can also get in contact with us by emailing questions at biome.media. So, without further ado, let's see what's in store for today's Animal Spotlight. just coming up in Africa as you slowly glide through the long grass of the swamps. The air is thick and heavy and the mosquitoes are incessant. You shift your weight in the boat, glancing at the water around the front, the boat barely disturbing the water around it as it inches through the shallow swamp. Suddenly, about a meter off the side of the boat, you see something break the glassy surface of the water from below before disappearing again. The only indication it was there was a slight ripple. You quietly turned to catch the eye of your guide to ask what it was. That, my friend, was a marbled lungfish coming up for a breath, they say. They continue to tell you all about the lungfish. Lungfish refer to six species of fish that are different from most other fish in the sense that they, well, have lungs. There are four species that live on the African continent, of which the largest is the marble lungfish. There is one species that lives in South America, and one that lives in Australia. The four African species are more closely related to the South American species than they are to the Australian. The Australian species, also known as the Queensland lungfish, has been separated from the others for so long There have been fossils discovered in northern New South Wales that are virtually the same as the modern Queensland lungfish. This means that the Queensland lungfish has remained basically unchanged for the last 100 million years. It is part of the reason that it is so different and possibly more primitive than the other five species. Because of this, it is considered a living fossil and is one of the oldest genera, genera, of vertebrates still alive today. Lungfish are elongated fish with fleshy lobes for fins instead of ray fins like other fish. This means that they're more closely related to coelacanths than other regular fish. They're also fairly closely related to tetrapods or amphibians and land-dwelling animals. Lungfish are omnivorous, feeding on other fish, amphibians like frogs, mollusks like snails, or even insects. They will also eat some of the plant matter growing in their environment. All of the species inhabit similar environments within their respective regions. The habitat that they thrive on is swampland or slow-flowing rivers where oxygen content is low. This, because the oxygen level is low, is one of the reasons for breathing oxygen straight from the air rather than through the water. All lungfish use gills when they hatch. Some can take a few weeks before they switch over to using their lungs though. 
the four African lungfish and the South American lungfish aren't, are believed not to be able to rely solely on their gills as adults. Well, there is a bit of controversy. There was a study done in 2007 that um, suggests otherwise. But it is currently believed that the gills in the four African species of lungfish and the South American lungfish aren't developed enough to sustain them. This means that they need the lungs to breathe oxygen. There is also another function um, that having lungs allows these fish to do, at least the four African ones, um, and that is usually in the realm of amphibians or, or uh, mollusks, but we'll talk about that concept in the next section of this episode. Some of the reasons the Queensland lungfish is considered more primitive than the other five species is that the Queensland lungfish still has the ability to use its gills while the other five species have lost that ability. Um, as they do not provide enough oxygen to the blood for the fish to survive. The Queensland lungfish, however, still has this ability. Another difference is the fact that while the other five species are able to live a long period of time outside of the water due to some very interesting adaptations, um, the Queensland lungfish does not have this ability and can only live a few days provided it is kept moist. Another difference of the Australian lungfish or the Queensland lungfish is that it only has a single lung while the other five species both or rather the other five species all have two lungs. Despite its name, the lungfish is not the only fish to have lungs. The common ancestor, ancestor sorry, of lobe-finned fish and ray-finned fish is believed to possibly have had lungs as well. The lungs of ray-finned fishes, however, seems to have adapted into swim bladders, which allows them to maintain their buoyancy in the water. There are some ray-finned fishes, however, that have maintained their lungs, and they live in the same type of habitat as the lungfish. Specifically, we're looking at the bichures. Um, they also live in swampland and low oxygen level waters. In all, sorry, all but the Queensland lungfish, the parents protect the nest and their eggs. The males of the South American lungfish actually go a step further and they actually grow a feathery extension to their pelvic fins while protecting the nest. The current theory is that because these extensions are highly vascularized, meaning they have a lot of blood vessels, it is thought that they are used to help add oxygen to the water for the eggs. So basically, the current theory is that the male lungfish will breathe in oxygen. It'll use a high level of blood oxygen ratio and send that blood to those fins and then to the extension where the oxygen will leak out into the water providing oxygen or adding to the oxygen level in the water. The parents however of the Queensland lungfish do not protect the eggs like the other five species of lungfish. Once the eggs are laid they are left. In fact the Queensland lungfish does so little for the eggs that the mother releases the eggs 
while swimming rather than just sitting there to release the eggs. But she'll do it on the fin as opposed to on the wing of birds, but on the fin. The male then swims behind her releasing his sperm. If the egg is unlucky and doesn't land on a plant or dead wood that, uh, but instead lands in the sand, the likelihood of that egg hatching is minimal. One difference between the Queensland youngsters and the other lungfish is that the young Queensland lungfish have the ability to quickly change their colour, um, but they lose this ability as they mature. Your guide also mentions that one of the main predators of the African lungfish species is the oddly majestic shubal. It's a large bird that looks like a stork but is genetically related to pelicans. Also, despite being perceived as primitive, lungfish currently have the largest genome of any known vertebrate, having approximately 130 billion base pairs. To give you an idea, um, each base pair is is a. If you look at a at a um, DNA molecule, it always looks like it's a spinning ladder. Each rung on that ladder is a base pair, and each rung um, codes for a certain portion of a protein. Now. The lungfish currently have the largest genome of any known vertebrate, having 130 billion base pairs. So if each rung in the ladder of DNA were one bit of a computer information, the genome would take up 130 gigabytes of data. That is about 43 times larger than a human's genome, which only has about 3 billion base pairs, or about 3 gigabytes of data. So basically, your your um, DNA takes up about the same amount of space as a full HD Marvel movie, whereas the DNA of a lungfish will handle about or could take up the space of 43 of those movies. They are truly fascinating creatures, and this highlights how much we don't actually know about their genetics. What is the extra genetic information used for, or is it just junk or useless DNA? Finally, however, the boat returns to camp and your guide stops talking. That's your animal spotlight for today. Stay tuned as we look into the technical side of zoology, coming up next. Hello there, and welcome to the technical section of this um, episode 2 podcast. Now, we've all heard of hibernation. It's where bears and other mammals basically sleep for months on end while the winter rages outside their den. To survive these months, well, sometimes even many months without food, the animals, because Truthfully, it's not only mammals that enter hibernation, but the animals slow down their metabolism and allow their body temperature to be lowered. The main bodily functions also slow down significantly, whereas other processes like urinating and defecating are paused completely as the organism is no longer producing food. 
Hibernation is basically a way for an organism to survive when there is a distinct lack of food due to winter. There is a summer version of this, however, and it's called estivation. In some of the warmer parts of the world, during the dry season, the lakes and rivers could dry up, causing a drought. This can cause certain habitats to experience months or longer with little to no food. The organisms in these habitats undergo estivation during these times. As an example, some species of the African lungfish actually dig themselves into the mud, making sure they have holes that they can breathe through. The fish then produces large amounts of mucus that allows them to retain moisture. During estivation, the animal goes through some significant uh, physiological and biological, uh, biochemical even, adjustments. These changes affect important systems like the immune response, energy consumption, and even metabolic activity. Hypometabolism, or a decrease in metabolism, is a key characteristic of estivation. This is because without the decrease in metabolism, the organism would require the same amount of nutrition. During these times of estivation, most animals can go through, uh, that go through it can slow down their metabolism by 70 to 80%. However, there are some animals that can drop it by almost 100%. But we'll talk about some of these in a few minutes. Let's first talk about how some vertebrates estivate. Vertebrates are mammals with a vertebral column or a backbone. These would be your mammals, reptiles, birds, and fish. Um, we touched on part of what the lungfish does when it starts estivating. It buries itself in the sand and forms a mucus cocoon around itself to prevent it from drying out. However, it cannot stop all of its metabolic processes. It would die. It still needs to breathe, and while the fish may not need to eat, the cells will still metabolize the fat storages um, or the fat stores, albeit at a slower rate. This means that there is still a waste product produced. In the lungfish, when not in a dormant state, this waste product is released as ammonia, which dissolves readily in water. It's just released through the gills. Ammonia is quite toxic to cells though, which complicates things if you're lying buried in the sand, surrounded by a layer of mucus to prevent you from drying out, and you can't actually get rid of the ammonia. So to counter this, the lungfish, when the lungfish enters a state of dormancy, the cellular pathway that produces the ammonia actually changes to produce urea instead of ammonia. Urea is a less toxic or cousin to ammonia and can be stored in the interstitial fluid. Now what I mean about by interstitial fluid is the fluid that takes up space between the cells of the lungfish tissue. It is stored here until the lungfish comes out of the estivation um, and is surrounded by water again. What happens to the lungfish is similar to what happens to certain types of amphibians as well. Except 
Instead of creating a mucus cocoon, some amphibians shed their skin without actually shedding their skin. Um, layers of their skin release as though they were about to be shed, but the frogs don't get rid of them. They don't break them. They don't try and pull them off. Instead, they stay on the frog and act as a barrier to prevent water loss or desiccation. The frogs and other terrestrial vertebrates all produce urea naturally as they have to store it in their bladder before they urinate to get rid of it. Therefore, there is not really a need for the cell pathways to change with regards to the waste production, which is a fascinating characteristic of the lungfish. Invertebrates, however, also undergo or can undergo estivation, and some of them can be a lot more extreme than those of the vertebrates. For example, if we look at the Polypedilium uh, van der Plankai, it's a type of midge or very small type of fly um, from Africa whose lava matures in temporary pools in the cracks and crevices of rocks. These pools because they're generally quite small, evaporate quite easily. And when that happens, the lava enters a dormant state where, where they can dry out. They can remain in this dormant state for years, actually, before water fills up the pool again and they are revived. The lava are able to survive even when their internal water content drops to an unbelievable 4%. Oddly enough, and probably not related to the estivation, but oddly enough, the lava can also survive exposure, although brief, to 102 degrees Celsius or 270 degrees below zero Celsius, which is a mind-blowing three degrees above absolute zero, or the point where the molecules completely stop moving. While it might not be directly related to estivation, it is an interesting fact about these creatures. However, all of these examples show that estivation is a prominent and important characteristic that affects the life cycle of many creatures. It has been found in plants, invertebrates, including sea creatures that um, enter estivation when the water gets too warm. It has also been found in vertebrates and even mammals. Each group has its own limit to which it can handle estivation though. None of the mammals can undergo it and will survive for years without food. But it's enough for their specific environments. Estivation is a really interesting topic and one that could definitely use more scientific eyes on. However, that's it for this episode. If you want to talk more about estivation, be sure to contact us on social media or visit our site at biome.media. You can sign up for our newsletter there and never miss a single episode or any of our content we post on the site. There are some big things coming. Until next time, be safe and remember, questions are the foundation of science. <laughs>